Hey everyone, and welcome to the Julia LaRose Show. Today's guest is David Cody, the former CEO of Honeywell. I really enjoyed this conversation with David. He's someone who knows a thing or two about turning things around. He went from being a screw-off student with a 1.8 GPA to a serious student with a 4.0. He started as an hourly worker at GE before getting fired by Jack Welch. He later became the CEO of Honeywell, taking the company from a $20 billion market cap to a nearly $120 billion market cap, delivering returns of 800% and beating the S&P by nearly two and a half times. I think his book, Winning Now, Winning Later, is a must read. And even Fortune called it one of the best guides ever on how to lead a company. I think you'll enjoy some of the things that he has to say. I know I certainly did. Well, I'm pleased to bring in David Cody, executive chairman of Vertiv Holdings, the former CEO of Honeywell, and the author of the best-selling book, Winning Now, Winning Later, How Companies Can Win in the Short-Term While Investing for the Long-Term. David, it's so great to have you on the show and great to see you again. Yeah, nice to see you again, too. You always do a great job with these. Well, I always enjoy interviewing you. And of course, your book to me is a must read, whether you are you know, a 22 year old just starting out, or maybe you're one of those folks who's on the fast track to eventually becoming CEO, or maybe you're already a CEO of a Fortune 500 or even a startup. I, I think there's a lot of practical advice for everyone. Um, but I want to go back to the very beginning, because uh, I do yeah. think of you as a turnaround CEO, but even in your earliest years, you managed to turn things around. And um, when I read your book, it was the very end, the epilogue. And you kind of talk about in your own words that you were a bit of a screw off, that somehow you had a 1.8 GPA in college. Uh, you weren't going to class yet. You managed to turn things around for you. So can we go back to like the beginning and uh, revisit uh, your younger years, David? Well, they were uh, uh, tumultuous years. And you know, as I like to say, I had a lot of ambition and no direction. So I had no idea what good looked like or where a career could go. And I mean, I grew up in this small uh, French Canadian mill town in New Hampshire, where I actually spoke French before I spoke English as a kid. And don't try me out. My uh, whatever I know now is vestigial more than anything else. And there really were no role models. I mean, there was uh, no money in the town. So there really were no role models. And I had no idea what I might be capable of. So, and, and I hated school. I, I did not like being in school. The only good thing about it was I was good at it without having to put a lot of uh, effort into it. I nearly quit when I was a senior in high school because I had a job working in a service station. First time in my life, I actually had cash and thought what a great way this is to live. And I just kind of didn't take life seriously. I took a year off between high school and college because I thought I wanted to be a mechanic. And then I found that didn't work out so well. And then I thought, okay, I'll be a carpenter and found out that didn't work out so well. And one of my last jobs was uh, digging out cellar holes with a shovel uh, after the house had already been built when somebody wanted to expand to a full cellar. And said, this is ridiculous. I, I, you know, I need to go back to school because I'm not capable of anything. Then uh, instead of going to school, I signed up for the Navy and I was going to be on a nuclear sub for six years, which uh, thank God didn't happen because come to find out I'm really bad with claustrophobia and didn't realize that till I got my first MRI and found myself panicking for no known reason uh, other than claustrophobia. And the day before I was supposed to swear in, I called and said, uh, 
hey, what happens if I don't show up? And uh, the recruiter said, well, uh, you know, you've made a commitment to the federal government. This is serious. You uh, can't just uh, play around with something like that. And I say, was there early insight into analytical skills? Because I kept sitting there listening to him and thinking, okay, how do I ask the question? And I finally said, all right, so if I don't show up tomorrow, can you send the cops to my house to get me? And he hesitated a moment and said, no. And I said, well, then I ain't coming tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So I drove to UNH uh, because they wouldn't let me in. It was uh, August. They wouldn't let me in, even though they let me in the prior year and said I had to apply. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Uh, They took me last year. I'm a year older. I mean, I I didn't get any dumber. So I I don't see what the issue would be. So I sat outside the director of admissions office for two hours with no appointment. And this is in the day, yeah, you had the long hair, you know, my flannel shirt, my jeans, all that kind of stuff. And um, secretary wasn't going to let me in. And I just kept saying, well, I'll talk to him on the way to his car. Uh, I'll just sit here. And eventually she said, you're not leaving, are you? And I said, no. So she got me in. I spent five minutes talking to him and what a good guy. And it shows that I always use it as an example of uh, there are people who just follow the rules, and then there are people who actually think about what they're doing. And he let me in. I said, you know, you have to apply again. Yes, but I'll let you in if you get it in by a certain date. And he made a big difference in my life because I was making such stupid decisions then. Who knows what I'd have done in the ensuing uh, four months. So I got in, didn't like it, uh, did okay. Then um, my sophomore year, I was called in front of the assistant dean of students and told, I wouldn't be allowed to live on campus anymore. Uh, I asked why. And she said, because you're a general troublemaker. It seems like no matter where you is, you are. There's no one big thing, but there's always some kind of trouble. And you can tell I'm still kind of proud of that. And uh, interestingly enough, I I met her again like 40 years later because she was Judd Gregg, who was the senator from New Hampshire. She was his chief of staff. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, small world. So I I got a job working nights, went to school days, and uh, decided that the path to riches was in commercial fishing with a buddy. And, of course, that was a dumb idea also. We had a ball. His dad (laughs) said we had more empty beer cans on our boat than all the other boats in the harbor combined. But uh, we thought that was pretty funny. Uh, It wasn't the smartest decision I ever made, but I had a ball doing it. Then we sold a boat. Well, he got married. His wife said, you can't keep fishing with that idiot friend of yours, like a lot of newly married women do with their (laughs) husband's friends. And I uh, was casting around what to do. So I quit again because I I was just sick of school and this is how I was going to get wealthy. Got married myself and I was living in a third floor, unheated, uninsulated apartment in New Hampshire which, yeah, gets cold. And first month, uh, my wife tells me she's pregnant. And I said, well, you know, how is that possible? Uh, you're taking the pill. And she said, well, you know, it just happens. I thought, uh, yeah, I know how that happens. <laughs> but okay, it's what it is. And third month, she says, I can't work anymore either. And I did the math, and I was making two bucks a week less than we were spending. And that assumed no Christmas gifts, no birthday gifts, nothing, no going out, nothing. And I had a hundred bucks in the bank and I thought, okay, I got 50 weeks to figure out what the hell I'm going to do to support my family. 
And that's when I finally got serious. Uh, no more going to the VFW, no more playing pool, just buckle down. And come to find out, as uh, tight a schedule as I was having to run, my life actually got easier because I was having to schedule papers six weeks in advance because that was the only weekend I'd be able to do it. And everything got easier. And I got a 4-0 that year because I was uh, being serious about it. And five, I was an hourly worker at GE, managed to land an exempt job. And it just kind of continued on from there. But it's like, I always, in fact, I uh, uh, call my oldest son the epiphany. I because like I, I tell him he was my epiphany because he scared the bejesus out of me. So it was a very tumultuous beginning, but it all managed to get me on the right path. I think it's important for folks to hear that, though, because it's, it's very real. Um, you're mentioning like that you didn't have many uh, role models growing up. But I, I just want to pull out a couple of lessons just from what I was hearing from you, just that I picked up, that you're very analytical. So you're able to like, figure out how to not go to the Navy, um, by asking those questions. Um, you're a bit of, of you know how to hustle cause you got into UNH, even though I think you had applied before. And then like what you're telling me was that they were going to make you have to do it again. And then you uh-huh. met the guy who doesn't just follow the rules. And, um, one of the things that I took away from your book was a couple of lessons you learned from your parents, which is like the importance of hard work, taking care of your family, which she certainly stepped up and did. But maybe most importantly is thinking independently. Love to kind of hear your thoughts on independent thought. Well, uh, to back up a little bit, I've often been asked uh, to your point about, um, okay, who who was your role model for leadership? And because I spent so much time at GE, uh, everybody expects me to say, oh, Jack Welch. You know, it was was Jack Welch. But at the end of the day, it was really my mom and dad. Because when I looked back at all the stuff I would do, it was just really kind of following the lessons that they taught me. And uh, I was the first one in my family to graduate from high school. So my dad had six months of high school. My mom had two days and then she got a small secretarial degree at a a kind of a local, not even a community college. I'm not sure what you call it, but to learn how to be a secretary. So they didn't have advanced degrees. And as my mom said many times, look, I didn't even know how to advise you after you were 12 years old. I, I didn't know what to tell you, but they really kind of taught the values that I think are important for anybody who's a leader, whether it's uh, making sure that you treat everybody with respect until uh, demonstrated otherwise. To your point, hard work matters. Uh, Make sure you work on the right things. And most importantly, the one you touched on, think independently. Now, they didn't say it that way. Uh, my dad used to say, be a leader, not a follower. Uh, my mom uh, used to say, think for yourself whenever you would say something like, uh, well, my friends are doing it. And I'd have to say, you hear that enough as a kid. It is irritating and annoying as hell. But it does have an impact. It's like, I guess, dripping water on a stone. It kind of gets to you. And I'm fond of saying Uh, Independent thinking is a lot more rare than being smart. And you oftentimes run into a herd of smart people, all with great degrees, did well on tests, but they all think alike. They really don't look at a set of data and come to a different conclusion than everybody else does. And where I think advancement comes from and doing well in life is from that ability to look at the same things, but see them a little differently. 
and say, well, wait a minute, this is what I take away from this, and I'm going to do something differently as a result. And I'd have to say that has uh, paid off extraordinarily well for me in my life and career. And it's one of the things that I advocate for everyone is be able to get yourself out of the herd, even though it may be uncomfortable in the beginning because we all tend to be herd animals and there's a comfort that comes from everybody thinking the same way, whether it's this is how my tribe thinks or this is my identity, whatever it is. But when you force yourself to actually start analyzing things and thinking about things differently and saying, is this still really true? Do I disagree? And just ask yourself that those questions instead of just accepting what others are saying. Wow, you can end up in some really interesting places. I really like that, David, and that you said that it's a lot more rare than being smart. Um, I'd love to kind of go a little bit further and you know, hear a bit more about how you applied this. Like in your career, independent thinking, I I read that you would carve out days for yourself um, with your blue notebook just to kind of go through these (laughs) exercises. Like, can you like share with folks like how this worked for you in your life and in your routine? Yeah, I can't uh, say that I can come up with a specific uh, example. Well, actually I can. I remember there's one, we had a really troublesome uh, location in uh, this business I was in out of the six or seven locations we were in. And I can remember everybody looking at this decrease in volume that we were going to be seeing over the next three years. And everyone was looking at it going, Oh my God, this is a huge issue, a huge problem. We've uh, uh, don't know what we're going to do. I mean, what are we going to tell our bosses? And I can remember looking at that same data and saying, gee, I think this finally gives us an opportunity to get out of this location that's been a problem for decades. And I can remember the guy, uh, I was like, I don't know, 36 years old. The guy I was talking to was 61 or 62. And he looked at me with complete shock on his face and said, gee, you're right. This is an opportunity. And I I was just kind of doing that, but I, I just didn't accept uh, what I'd heard. Uh, I just kind of carried that with me through my whole career and how I ran our uh, meetings at Honeywell, uh, looking at whatever was being presented to me and thinking about, okay, do I uh, agree with what they're saying? And I asked everybody to construct presentations in a way that uh, allowed me to know right up front in an executive summary what are you going to tell me in this pitch? Because a lot of people like to do presentations as a story that leads you step-by-step to the big reveal. Mm -hmm. And then you applaud and say, oh man, that was tremendous. What a wonderful performance. But it doesn't give you the opportunity to question every step of the way. Okay, when they talk about this, do I think that's consistent with the conclusion that they're arriving at? Is this just sophistic logic that looks logical, but really isn't? And I would ask, well, what's the answer right up front? And why are you saying that? Then as they went through the pitch, I'd be able to ask questions all along the way to see, okay, do I agree with whatever their assumption or their mini conclusion is here that gets them to think that this big conclusion is correct? And 
people would say it was painful (laughs) (laughs) because I wasn't there to watch a performance. I was there to, as I put it, the big thing a leader has to do is make good decisions. You only make good decisions if you can really understand all the data, all the opinions, and arrive at a conclusion that makes sense. Whether it's consistent with what you thought at the beginning or not is irrelevant. What matters is that you make a good decision because that's how you're going to get measured. Yeah. And this is like, I think this is kind of timeless advice and it's applicable, you know, across companies, different sectors, just like a business in general. And, um, you know, you were just alluding to it. They are like how you ran meetings or presentations even like it's like, don't waste your time. Like you don't have to put in all the jargon and fluffy stuff. Um, I liked how in meetings that you- It's also, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Julie, I have to interrupt because it's also one of the reasons that I insisted on short presentations. And I, it's funny. I mean, people want to make it every presentation ragu, like everything's in there. And I always felt like it's variously attributed to Mark Twain or Blaise Pascal. But this line that I always thought was just incisively brilliant, where he wrote a letter and he, in his letter, he wrote to his buddy, I'm sorry I wrote such a long letter. I didn't have the time to write a short one. And Man, that is so correct. It's so spot on. Yeah. Yeah. Because like there's something about just being concise, you know, versus um, rambling on. But one of the other things, Steve, that I love about the way you would run meetings is you would start with like the most junior person in the room to get their take and then go around like (laughs) there's so much to unpack there. But like walk us through like maybe a bit of the unlocks that you found through that process. Well, it was always kind of funny. Uh, I, I actually stumbled on this approach. And uh, the way I ended up talking about it was that as a leader, it's your job to be right at the end of the meeting, not at the beginning of the meeting. And I say I stumbled because I'm a slightly on the extroverted side. So it absolutely didn't bother me to kind of put an idea out there, um, kind of see what everybody had to say, assuming that everybody would speak up just like I did. And you end up learning that's not how people are. And I ended up in the beginning in this a very troublesome situation because uh, I couldn't trust my board and I couldn't trust my staff. So I found myself having to be very careful about how I said things because there were a bunch of people who would uh, just immediately disagree and might, ha- might or might not have a good reason for it, but uh, you can certainly put up a good fight if you're talking to somebody who knows less about it than you do. And it just gave me the opportunity to make a lot of bad decisions with the approach that I'd been taking. So I instead, with any potential issue, didn't let them know what I was thinking. And just started off with, here's the issue that I'm seeing. Uh, you know, do you guys think it's an issue? And you kind of have that conversation first. Then I would get to, okay, so uh, what do we do about it, if anything? And I, you know, I, I'm just who I am. I can't go into a meeting without some idea of what I think needs to happen. But I would never say it. And instead, I would make sure the argument really developed. And if somebody said something I disagreed with, I would take that point of view and say, now, why wouldn't that be correct? That act sounds like it makes sense to me. And 
the whole time people were talking, rather than just looking at the person who was talking, I was always looking around the table to see who's doing those micro expressions or body language or facial movements that might indicate disagreement because not everybody speaks up. And if you do any kind of Myers-Briggs work, you really learn the difference between introverts and extroverts. And by the way, I would encourage any listener to get a Myers-Briggs analysis just to understand who you are and how you function. Uh, Not something I ever thought was possible that everybody could be lumped into one of 16 blocks, but man, it sure does work. I was shocked myself. What was yours? uh, Do you remember? Yes. I'd done it several times. And interestingly, I started off as an ENTP and that's the kind of more visionary uh, looking forward kind of folks. And then uh, I got burned a couple of times on big projects where I'd been assured by people everything was doing was going just fine. And I changed my management style to become a lot more focused on, okay, is it happening the way they're telling me? And interestingly, every subsequent evaluation, I've been an ENTJ. Interesting. Which which is kind of like the classic block. That's like the field marshal because that was mine when I took it in high school, but I think I'm more of an introvert these days. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's, you know, like I said, most HR tools, whether it's the egg tossing or the team building, (laughs) are complete baloney. Waste of time, silly, and do everything uh, possible to make HR folks look silly. That Myers-Briggs analysis is something I would absolutely uh, buy into. So I would make sure everybody spoke up and uh, would would provide input. And I remember I had this one guy. uh, I mean, he was on the far end of the introvert scale. And he would have been the ultimate poker player because he would just sit there, hands folded, no facial movement, no head movement, no body movement. I wasn't even sure he blinked all the time. And you would look at him and think, this guy is just a lump. He's just sitting there. And then I would finally call on him and say, well, what do you think? And holy moly, the torrent that would come out of him on how he was looking at the issue, what he thought we needed to do, who had to do it, just remarkable. So I would try to make sure that we developed all that. Then in the um, last piece of it, I would start with the most junior person in the room and ask them, okay, what do you think I should do? And I was doing this as a way of uh, teaching because I wanted people thinking. And I used to talk about how I wanted us to be a thinking company. So I wanted them to be participating and not just passive disseminators of information, you know, do with it what you will, but rather actually thinking about what should the business do. And secondly, it gave me really good insight into Uh, perspectives that I might not normally have. And it's really funny because the first time you do it, the most junior person panics. They've never been asked before. And they look at their boss and their boss is more than ready to jump in and answer for them. And I would usually put my hand out and say, no, 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 I'll get to you. I promise. But I want to start here and I want to know what do you think I should do? And I would go around the table, most junior to the most senior or most uh, the person most affected by whatever the decision would be. And that gave me the opportunity to get the benefit of everybody's thinking 
on what made sense and why. Then, of course, you know, as you might imagine, there wasn't unanimity of opinion generally, and I'd have to then make a decision. And when I did, I would always explain it so that the people to, for whom my decision might be going contrary to their recommendation, that they would understand why I was making the decision and why a particular piece of information or opinion, in my view, outweighed whatever they had advocated for, because there are too many people who feel like, well, if you don't agree, that just shows you're not listening. And I always wanted to be able to demonstrate, no, I did listen. I, I do understand what you said. I just think that it's outweighed by this other piece of information that needs to be considered. And you do that often enough. I really think it helps to train the company on, hey, here's how I want you thinking. Here's how I want you gathering all the facts and opinions and being able to then make a decision and explain it so that everybody understands our job here is to make good decisions. It's not for a leader to be right from the beginning and be, you know, that guy who you just go to that person and they'll always give you the answer. And no, you know, I want everybody thinking. I like that. You're making better decisions. And also it's kind of giving those folks real skin in the game and kind of giving them that psychological permission to step up and, and be on at all times because you will get called on, which I think is really important. Um, let's well, it does. It, it's, it's interesting because it causes them to do that because they know, okay, I better have a point of view when I get in here. But like with anything with human behavior, you end up with um, uh, corollaries after that. So I found like the finance function, uh, the, CFO, the CFO could not stand the fact that there might be a disagreement with whatever he thought So within his function. So he would gather them all together before the meeting to say, here is our opinion. And he expected everybody to adhere to it. So then I had to find a way around that. And I would just acknowledge, hey, I know you guys do this. And I would turn to the most junior person and say, so, I mean, do you agree with that? I mean, do you actually think that makes sense? And now they were being put on the spot and you get to the correct answers again. So it's, human beings are really interesting in their kind of collective and group behavior when you uh, watch how they respond to something that makes a lot of sense, but they think could be embarrassing. I never thought it was, but some did. Well, I think it's a fascinating exercise. Um, I wanna talk about leadership, your own evolution. Um, I'm just gonna point out for folks because when you joined Honeywell, it was 2002, you took this company from your time there, it was a $20 billion market cap to a $120 billion market cap by the time you stepped down, um, delivering returns of 800% and being S&P by nearly two and a half times, um, yeah. which is just I'm remarkable. Proud of yeah. I think a lot of folks just look at that and it was like turbulent times too. This wasn't just like everything's, yeah. you know, honky dory going up in the market. Like you're talking about some really turbulent times, but when- And uh, I can't help but add, uh, we were kicked out of the Dow Jones Industrial Average my third year there because we were the smallest of the four industrial companies. And it was something like 12 years later, we were put back into the right. Dow Jones Industrial Average because we were now the biggest market cap industrial company in the world. It's amazing. Yeah. And like I hear this from other, I talk to a lot of CEOs and um, people have pointed this out just sp specifically about you um, as well. Like just 
everything that you've gone through in your own just journey. But I kind of want to go back to like, like when in your career, like how does one even decide like, hey, I'm, I might want to be on the CEO. Like how do you even get on the CEO track? Like how does this happen? Yeah, it didn't start that way. I mean, you, going back to that tumultuous beginning, um, in the beginning, I just wanted enough money to feed my family, which um, I did not have. And it was only the third year of the marriage I referenced earlier. I came home one day and everything was gone. Uh, everything, furniture, wife, kid, uh, everything gone. And that was extraordinarily painful. It still is when I think back on it. And as dire as my financial situation had been before, it was worse now. And I was just trying to dig myself out of a hole. And that's all I look at. I had no big aspirations. I just wanted to get my head above water so I didn't have to worry about money anymore. And I was sick of you know, having to every week figure out which bills I could let slide, which ones had to be paid because the power would get cut off and that kind of stuff. And man, I hated living like that. So I took a job where for five years I was on the road. I didn't have a house, didn't have a car. Uh, most of the time didn't have to pay my meals and it accelerated my career. And that's what finally kind of got me out of that hole. And even then I wasn't thinking big. I was just thinking next job, you know, get a bigger job. I found out I really liked business. I enjoyed the problems. I enjoyed figuring it out. I enjoyed getting it done. Uh, I just really liked all of that. And it wasn't until, let's say, I guess I was about uh, mid thirties and I was in finance and I thought, gee, you know, I think I could go into general management. Uh, I look at basically these guys are just doing what I'm recommending it can't be that huge a step to go from recommending to actually doing it, despite what everybody says. And the answer was, no, it wasn't that hard, despite what everyone said. And I got a lot of advice not to do that. And uh, this is one where I say, you can't always listen to friends and family. You want to hear what they say, but it doesn't mean you have to do it because it's your life and you have to figure out uh, what do you want to do. And, I looked at it and said, yes, you know, I'm getting a lot of advice. In fact, I got no advice from anyone saying, yes, uh, do this. But I thought, I don't want to be 60 years old and look back on my life and wonder, gee, I, I wonder if I could have been a general manager. So I'd rather know, even if it means, no, you suck, you can't do it. Uh, I'd rather know than uh, not be able to find out. And it wasn't until I, uh, I had a general manager job when I was 39 or 40, was the first time that it ever crossed my mind, gee, you know, I think I probably could be a CEO somewhere. And that's when I started thinking a little more broadly about it. And when uh, Jack Welch uh, fired me <laughs> from GE, that, that kind of was the final impetus to get me going and get a job like that and find out whether I could do it or not. And of course things worked out, but that wasn't obvious from the, from the beginning. And it really was an evolution in how I thought about my career. And the other thing I guess I would advise your uh, listeners is you can have a plan for your career. Uh, my plan has been disrupted at least three times in a major way. And I had to just revisit, rethink, replot, what do I do next? Because obviously, what I laid out is thinking this was going to be the solution is not. 
and I've got to do something differently now. And you can expect that's going to happen to you. It also, again, it goes back to thinking independently. Like you had outside voices telling you no, but you're just listening to like, okay, you're hearing everything, but you're processing, you're going to do what is, what is right for you. Um, Yep. Exactly. I always uh, tell people, even if, uh, you know, my UNH commencement speech back in 2011, it's your life. It's not your parents' life. It's not your friend's life. It's your life. And life will happen to you with or without your decisions. So you might as well participate and make some decisions, conscious decisions, and think about it in terms of when you're 60 years old, when you look back, what, you, what do you want to be able to say about yourself? Yeah. And some people like to play it safe. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Others won't, like me, won't be able to stand not knowing. And there's nothing wrong with that either. I like that, that you won't be able to stand not knowing. Um, you mentioned GE. You mentioned being fired by Jack Welch. Like, um, can you tell us a bit about your time there or like what, what it was like working for Jack Welch? Like, you know, people often, there, there's a lot of talk about him these days. There's a new book. I have not read it yet. Um, I think that it's a bit more critical, but as someone who was just on the inside, like, can you share a bit about um, your experience there? Yeah. Um, I would say, remember, I have uh, no good reason to be supportive of the guy who fired me. So uh, when I say I think he was actually a tremendous leader and did a tremendous job at uh, GE. Uh, I'm not saying that from a position where uh, I should be predisposed to thinking he's a great guy. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, I would say the way I described it is he created an environment in GE where someone like me, who, uh, you know, state school background took me six years to, Uh, get through school, uh, more of a blue collar uh, background than anything else. Uh, I tended to speak up whether it was appreciated or not. It was just uh, who I am. But he created an environment where somebody like me could be successful. And that, I would say, was definitely not true of corporate America back then. And in many companies, it's still not true today. And for that, I will always be thankful. And you know, I always came away thinking his business instincts were tremendous. And while um, I wouldn't say he was the most analytical of people I ever met, and I never realized uh, how emotional he was about decisions or everything in general, that failing on my part not to recognize that. At the end of the day, I think he did a hell of a job there. And I know which book you're referencing, and I think it's just a hatchet job. I haven't, I haven't read it. I just saw like headlines at this point. That's as far as I went to. Somebody sent me a, uh, actually a former U.S. Senator sent it to me, the write-up, and said, what do you think, uh, true or 90% hatchet? And I sent back saying uh, 90% hatchet. This is, this, <laughs> somebody's come up with a hypothesis that I think is incorrect. And while they're running with it, wrote a book. I'm sure a lot of people will read it, so that yeah. person will do well, but. I don't even know what it's called, to be honest, but it's, you know, hearing from someone who'd been on the inside, like, and again, you mentioned you'd even been, been fired too. So I'm just kind of hearing your perspective is, um, it's super helpful. It's super interesting as well. I hated working for him. I didn't enjoy that at all because, uh, you know, getting back to this more emotional than analytical, and I tend to be more analytical and I could never understand 
why he was reacting to things the way he did, because, uh, you know, the data didn't support it. And it just didn't make sense to me. And of course, he was my boss. So up to me to be able to figure that out. And I never did. And, uh, you know, kind of resulted in my demise. But in the end, interestingly enough, I uh, he spoke with the success on Honeywell. He spoke very uh, highly of what I was doing and what I accomplished. Every time I saw him, he was very nice, very complimentary. And he made a lot of comments to the effect that he made a mistake, uh, not to me, but to people that were like one, one person removed. So at the end of the day, uh, we ended up uh, getting along just fine. Yeah. I think what you did at Honeywell is just one of those tremendous, um, you know, stories, one that I think folks will talk about for a long, long time. Like, again, I say this book is timeless. Um, So you came on in February 2002. You mentioned just like before, like there were folks you couldn't trust, couldn't trust your board uh, or people around you. And I think a big theme in the book was just your ability to kind of overcome the short-termism and focus on the long-term. So let's dive into your philosophy, maybe kind of help folks understand you know, how rampant short-termism is and why it's so important to kind of overcome. And I know that's something you really focused on um, at Honeywell. Yep, uh, still do, um, advertive too. And I uh, thank you for the comments on the book because uh, I often said uh, most business books would make great pamphlets because it's 10 pages of concept and uh, 250 pages of the same stories over and over again saying the same thing. And what I wanted to do was write something that 20 years from now, people could pick up and still be using and saying, yeah, a lot of the stuff in here is still relevant. So uh, thank you for that. The short-termism, kind of to branch it out a little bit, is I'm fond of this uh, concept that I talk a lot about that says, uh, success is about achieving two seemingly conflicting things at the same time. And As human beings, just like we talked about our predisposition to herd thinking, we have a predisposition to saying, hey, boss, what's the one thing you want me to do? Thinking that means focus. Okay, we're going to focus. Well, if you look at life and you look at business problems, there's always this countervailing item that you also have to be managing at the same time. And think about these kind of questions. Do you want low inventory or do you want great delivery for customers? Do you want the people closest to the action to be empowered for quick decisions or do you want to have good controls so nothing bad happens? Do you want to have the best people in your hiring or do you want jobs filled quickly? The answer in every case, and you can come up with a bunch of them, is you want both. So the trick is to figure out what's the root cause or the control system you can put in place that will accomplish both. The same is true when it comes to, do you want good short-term results or do you want good long-term results? And again, you have to figure out, how do I get to the root cause that will allow me to get both? And with Honeywell, my conclusion was uh, our accounting was ridiculously aggressive and unhealthy. I mean, we were generating 69 cents of cash for every dollar of earnings we generated to give you a sense for how much bookkeeping was going on. And that had been true for over a decade. 
20% of our earnings were coming from one-time items where you'd book a game because you did something or got a supplier to give you a payment up front that you could book as income. And it just causes people to have this kind of screwy view of, okay, how do you manage a business? And you run into this, uh, well, the most important quarter is the one you're in and you know, worry about next quarter, next quarter, next year, next year. And it's a, a very bad mentality. So I've always felt like you weren't going to grow for the long term unless you first established a good foundation on which you could build. So for us, the first big thing was I just went to war on bad accounting, uh, uh, all the one-time items. I wouldn't let anybody use those uh, uh, to make a quarter. Uh, wouldn't allow any kind of short term, here's how we're going to make it. I stopped all those meetings. They used to have meetings every week in which the CEO participated, looking at all the different types of accounting transactions that could occur to make the quarter, stopped all those. And that established the foundation. Then said, okay, what's our growth program going to be? And it was global growth and uh, new products and services and terrific customer satisfaction. So we had to start with, okay, where are we now? And the answer on all three was uh, not in a good place. And now we need a long-term plan that's going to make each of these things happen. So now I've got these two things that I need to reconcile because uh, we're barely surviving current quarters as it is, especially now that I've taken out all the accounting yet I need to find a way to invest in all of this stuff. And that's where I came up with the concept of uh, growing sales and holding fixed costs constant. And that's how we were going to generate the income so that I could give enough to share owners. Because remember, I was not highly regarded. I was viewed, one of the announcers on CNBC said, we're not sure this company can be turned around. And if it can, this is probably not the guy who can do it because He didn't make it to the first tier in the GE succession race, and he wasn't even the first choice to run Honeywell, both both of which were true. So I needed to make sure that I was providing something to investors in a way that wouldn't cause them to want to just get rid of me. By the same token, I had to find a way to invest for the future. And that's the mantra I started driving is we're going to grow sales and hold fixed costs constant so that the variable margin from sales would fall through and give us flexibility. And I have to say it worked out extraordinarily well. We took our R&D spending from like 3% of sales to 6% of sales at the same time we were growing. We took China from about 500 employees to 13,000 employees. It became our biggest country for sales outside the U.S. Uh, It all worked. But it was also just this very steady, relentless as they say, day by day, quarter by quarter, execute the strategy, as opposed to coming up with a new whirlwind strategy every two years. Just be smart about what you select and then constantly, relentlessly just make it happen. Yeah, to recap here, your principles for short and long-term performance, scrub accounting and business practices down to what's real, invest in the future, but not excessively and grow while keeping fixed costs constant. And I think too, like just you saying, turning on CNBC and hearing them say, oh, you weren't even like the top tier or considered a GE or even the top candidate for Honeywell. Like it just shows like the mental strength too of like being able to just like kind of prove 
the any the doubters wrong like can you kind of take us in just like I don't know like what you hear from other CEOs like the mindset I imagine like just kind of the mental game that goes along with this it, it's probably something that many of us don't understand like can you give us a peek into like what that's like? Like, how do you kind of <laughs> maintain that mental strength? I don't, I just don't know. Like, I'm sure like there's a lot of pressure uh, when you're in that role. Um, I guess there is. I, uh, I can't say it ever bothered me all that much. Uh, I, I would just view it as a problem to be solved. Uh, I think for some people, it bothers some people more than others. Uh, I can't say that I felt you know, particularly stressed. I always slept well at night. Um, for me, the big thing was always figuring out, okay, what am I going to do about it? And once I had a plan and knew what I was going to do about it, and that I felt pretty confident that plan was going to yield a result at some point, I really didn't worry about it all that much. And it affects different people differently. Uh, some people just, uh, you, you know, it's just tremendously bothersome to them. Uh, going back to my uh, upbringing, I guess, I mean, my mom and dad always reinforced, uh, don't worry about what other people say about you or what other people think. Yeah, you just worry about being a good person overall. That's what really matters. And, you know, it's, again, those kind of family values that uh, I think end up being important to you as an adult. And there was nobody to, like I said, they didn't have uh, high school degrees, but the values that I got from them, I thought were pretty useful throughout my career, throughout my life. Yeah. And I've tried to pass them down to my own sons. I like that. Again, it, you know, it's just like these simple values. Like and again, I'm going to say it goes back to being able to think independently. It doesn't matter what others think of you. Um, it's what you think of yourself. Well, what? that ability to think independently, um, if you're looking for it, you'll find it everywhere. And you'll see it in the press, politicians, the people you work with, their herd mentality is alive and well. And if you start really looking at stuff yourself and saying, gee, do I think that's true? You'll find yourself oftentimes going, no, you know, they're all saying this, but it really doesn't make any sense. And you'll be surprised at how often you see that. It's a good way to like, just live your life too. Like thinking um, just critically independently as well and asking these important questions you know, David, like one of the things that I've talked to you about and that I just love so much in this book, it's like the way you've been able to build a winning culture, the way you focus on talent. But my favorite part was like, and I, you, you're a Patriots fan, okay? Um, but I guess this is before Brady went to the uh, the Buccaneers. Where is he now? I don't even know. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I guess he's back, right? Yeah. But you were Tom Brady, uh, Patriots fan, so Tom Brady, like the Tom Brady rule, kind of finding the Tom Brady within um, – how do you, like, can you tell people about this? Like how you find these kind of like next generation folks um, that I guess before they get on the field or become a superstar? Well, it's, um, it's kind of funny when you look at uh, human nature. Again, you know, we've talked about the herd thinking uh, that happens, the not worried about what other people are saying. But another example is just, we all have a tendency to stereotype people. And that's true even in um, a company uh, with careers. And we'll say uh, somebody's been in a job for six years or seven years, and they do a good job. Uh, We have a tendency to look at them and just say, okay, well, uh, that's who they are. And really not capable of more because that's who they are. And it's really surprising 
how often it's just your own myopic view that really hasn't had an opportunity to figure out what somebody is capable of versus what they're doing currently. And I would say that's happened to me. And uh, one of the reasons I do believe that uh, Jack let me go from GE is he didn't think I was capable of being a CEO because he saw me in a certain way as this uh, blue collar background, non-MBA, state school kind of guy. And that didn't fit his stereotype of what a big CEO ought to be. And of course, I'd like to think that I uh, proved him wrong on that. But how he looked at that is a great example of what we all do all the time. And that includes me. So we would spend time uh, when a job opened up or when we were doing our succession planning, really asking ourselves, hey, do we think this person could do this next job? And when that job opened, rather than always go outside to find the shiny new penny that dulls over time, we would take a chance on the internal person because they're bringing all the right values. They understand uh, what it is you're trying to accomplish. They've got that kind of winning culture uh, mentality already. You've been able to see it and you understand it and give them a chance. And it's really surprising how often that works out superbly well. And it's really interesting because it's another insight into human nature about how we have to think about ourselves as leaders and how we have to think about the people that we work with and that work for us. Also, again, there's so many great lessons, um, just the way you explain things. Um, we only have a few more minutes here, but you know, there's so many lessons that can be learned just from overcoming short-termism, being able to think of you know, two seemingly conflicting things at once and focusing on that long-term, um, winning now, winning later. So what are kind of a themes in society right now that you think about applying some of these principles to maybe like just kind of broader themes. So what are some of the areas that you often think about? <laughs> well, there's a lot of them. A and, lot. Uh, I know there's a lot. The, <laughs> the, the, abil- the ability to think independently can drive you crazy sometimes as you- uh, well, What do you care that. about these days? Well, uh, let me take a uh, an easier one that everybody would be able to relate to. But uh, two years ago, Uh, Everybody was talking about how uh, working from home is the new way of the world. And this is how things are going to work in the future. And I can remember looking at that from the beginning and saying, no, that's not going to work. You don't overturn 100,000 years of how humans have evolved and worked together with a new app that allows you to be able to talk to each other on the machine. It's just not how people are. And it's taken a couple of years, but I think there's finally this growing recognition that, oh, you know, maybe we overstated uh, what what we think is going on here and that uh, maybe it's not going to work out the way we thought. And maybe it's four days a week that you're in the office. And, you know, eventually that's going to get back to five days a week and exceptions for working from home just because um, it's not how human beings are. There may be certain jobs you can do that way and that you can measure from home. Um, And just kind of the stuff that uh, people would say about, uh, geez, you know, everybody's more productive from home. 
no data to support it, purely anecdotal. And the only study I've seen came out of the University of Chicago where it said that people were 20% less productive working from home. And there's a lot of these things that just people start talking. Uh, sounds good. Sounds avant-garde. I'm new agey. I can talk to this stuff and it makes no sense. Uh, another one that I think uh, deserves a, a total relook is that we should do an after action report on how we responded to COVID. And if we take a look at, at and actually start to take a look at some of the statistics on where the deaths were occurring, who was truly at risk, uh, and you end up learning a number of these statistics were available before we started doing all the shutdowns. When we take a look at what the shutdown has cost, not just in dollar terms, but in terms of our, our kids' education, uh, I think there's a very good chance we'd come to a conclusion that we could have done this a lot differently and a lot less painfully. Now, politicians, because it was their decision, are generally not going to want to do that. But if you assume that there will be future pandemics, which to me makes absolute sense as the world grows to 10 billion people and air travel continues to grow and we become more global over time, it's going to happen. We got to put the time into doing an after action report. Now, doing that, though, requires some independent thinking. And I'm, I'm not sure that the world at large is ready for that yet, because uh, right now it's still more ideological, left and right, as opposed to, okay, what are the facts? When could we have known the facts? And how do we want whatever we've learned to apply to what happens in the future? And the military does a magnificent job doing this after uh, every skirmish, every war, having an after-action review where they just have to be honest with themselves and deal with the facts. We need to do that as a society. Uh, I don't know if our politicians are ready to do that yet, but we do need to do that. And that would be another another example in my view. You are just so full of uh, principles and, and great lessons for folks. Um, I guess before well, I- It's good to hear because I'm often told I'm full of something else. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's nice to hear you say that. Oh man, um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, David. Um, where can where can folks like find you like online? Do you have anywhere that you'd want to send them, or maybe you know pick up the book? Like, let us know like where where folks can maybe just learn a bit more. Well, you're very uh, very kind to uh, ask that question. I'd say I have a LinkedIn presence. I avoided social media my entire life for fear about where my life would go if I even touched it. And I ended up uh, on LinkedIn uh, purely because the publisher suggested that uh, it happen. So you, there's more information on LinkedIn and I can be reached there. Uh, the book, as you might imagine, Amazon has uh, everything and can just be uh, grabbed there, whether it's audio or whatever. I did the audio version myself. I listened to the audio version. I like that you read it and made it that much better. Well, uh, I can say a friend of mine told me, look, I listened to a lot of audio books uh, you need to do it yourself. Yep. Don't have someone else do it because it makes a difference. So I was in that soundproof booth reading the book for the first hour, and I wanted to throttle the guy because I said, I am going nuts inside this booth. I can't stand it, but I stuck with it. It was uh, 12 hours, which I was told was extraordinarily short. I can only say it didn't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I can only I'm imagine David. Well, David Cody, executive chairman of Vertiv Holdings, the former CEO of Honeywell, and the best-selling author of Winning Now, Winning Later, How Companies Can Win in the Short Term While Investing for the Long Term. This was such a fun conversation. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, you're very kind, and uh, thank you for doing such a nice job drawing out my story as it is. Thank you. Anytime, David. <laughs> <laughs> 